Okay, so just to recap, we are on chapter 16, verse 15, and we're talking about a king whose anger has been abated or adduced by a wise person. And after that, he's like in an exceptionally good mood because he regrets, you know, the rage and the temper that he had allowed to display for himself previously. So Malbum continues, um, the ruler's face is bright with goodwill, which means life to his subjects instead of the threatened death. This restoration of grace is like the rains that come after a long dry period as it bestows his goodwill and blessing. So I, you know, it's interesting because the, the Malbim does not specify what this means metaphorically, although I'm sure there are many other commentaries that do. Debbie, I can't mute you. Oh, there we go. Um, but I think, um, I think part of what it could mean for us as a takeaway is that sometimes we're in a situation where things seem like, like tensions are really high, you know, or if people are really angry or there are reactions and we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And I think it's important to realize that the storm passes, you know, I think this is especially true in families. Somebody could be really angry and you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is end. They're never going to talk to me again, or it's never going to be the same again, or, or they're never going to come over again. More often than not, the storm passes. And that doesn't mean the relationship is going to be like the best ever or as good as other relationships. But more often than not, that kind of hostility doesn't last forever. The storm passes, the person calms down, things can gradually heal. So, you know, it's important. And also the like critical piece here is that there was a wise person who had the ability to calm the king down, that we all need to try to cultivate this talent or skill or whatever you want to call it, where when somebody is angry, you know, we figure out a way to sort of lower the temperature and de-escalate so that it doesn't turn into like a, a bigger fire or a bigger raging storm. All right, thoughts or comments on verse 15. Okie doke. We'll move on to 16. Verse 16. Kinochachma matov mecharutz. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold. Ukinot bina nefchar mikasef. And to get understanding more choice than silver. So here we're talking about two different kinds of intelligence, right? Which is something that is very common in this book. Um, Wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the ability to apply what you've learned to real life. And Bina, understanding, is refers specifically to intuition, where you can deduce something from something else, meaning often it's like a subtext, like it's in between the lines. It's what's not being said overtly. So uh, Chachma, the wisdom is like gold, and the understanding or intuition is like silver. So what does that mean? Obviously, gold is better than silver. So what is the meaning of this comparison? So Malbim says, wisdom, the received teaching on moral matters, is compared to gold, which is stored in treasure houses and valued as a, pressure, as a precious substance in itself. Right? So gold is valuable. Like, you know, we even have an expression in English, the gold standard. It's right, or, or you win a gold medal. 
right? It's known that it's the best. It's not, it's not really so dependent on market value. It's more almost like representational, that this is something that's the best. It's the gold standard. It's the top, right? So that is wisdom. The, and, and the way he explains it here in the commentary is the received teaching on moral matters. So it's what you've learned about morality. And it also means the ability to apply it because, you know, the, the another text, as Ethics of the Fathers, talks about if a person has a lot of wisdom on moral matters, but they don't apply it, it's all theoretical knowledge. It's not worth very much, right? So this kind of super valuable wisdom that we're talking about is the knowledge and understanding and all the like received wisdom <clears throat> on how to actually behave and the ability to apply it. Understanding, so that's the second type of intelligence, bina, as it's called in Hebrew, the deductive capacity that leads a person to his own rational conclusions about truth and falsehood. So this is not necessarily, chachma is what you receive from others, bina is what you intuit on your own, is compared to silver, whose value and function are determined are defined in market terms, right? Right now, I don't think that silver is particularly valuable, right? So it's silver is valuable insofar as the market determines it's valuable. Silver is used actively to exchange and acquire goods as understanding operates in the world to acquire ever new and more valuable insights. So silver, the reason silver is used as a metaphor here is not just because, it, not just that it's like less valuable than gold, but also because silver is defined specifically in terms of buying and selling supply and demand, right? And therefore the same thing is true with intuition. When it comes to intuition, I look at what I get and then I do something and then I can put that back in the world and then I can pull something else out of the world. So it's sort of like this transactional buying and selling, give and take, that happens like in the marketplace, so to speak, right? It's like a marketplace of ideas. Um, now, the truth is that these two types of intelligence also work hand in hand. Um, there's another teaching in the book, Ethics of the Fathers, that says, Im ein chachma ein, um, hold on, Im ein, give me one second. No, that's not, that's not chachma. That's a different, that's a third type of intelligence, intelligence called da'at. So dot is knowledge. So that's just like things, knowing things, knowing things about people and places and history and just, you know, being a thing knower. So being a thing knower is something that you put into your kind of database. And then that helps you have more wisdom and more understanding. The more you know about the world, the more you understand about people, the more, um, the more knowledge and intuition you're going to be able to have. Okay, so th these are these two types of intelligence, and one of them is compared to gold, and one of them is compared to silver. So it, it, what's interesting about this is that acquiring wisdom is always going to be a combination of what happens in your own mind and what do you feel intuitively on your own and combined with everything that you are receiving from the outside world. One could call it nature and nurture, right? Nature, let's say that I happen to be born with a very empathetic nature, right? I, that does not happen to be me, but okay, let's say, right? And then 
I combine that with nurture. So let's say I grow up in a home that's very emotionally intelligent and people are comfortable talking about their feelings and I'm validated for my experiences, right? So those two things are going to combine with one another. I have the empathy that comes from within and the emotional intelligence that comes from without, right? And I put my empathy out there into the world. I take in what I receive from outside of me and it continues to cycle in and out. That's the metaphor of the marketplace. So we should always be, you know, sometimes I feel like, especially in our world of information that we live in right now, where you can literally Google anything, well, almost anything, I find that there seems to be an over-reliance on experts or perceived experts, as opposed to young people learning to pay attention to their own intuition. I think this is true of health. I think this is true of politics. I think this is true of morality. Um, I think this is true in parenting, relationships, where people feel like, well, this expert says, and this influencer says, and that book says, and that podcast says, but what about your own alarm bells that are ringing in your own head, your own intuition, your own, like, I feel like there's a, a mistrust that people often have young people, particularly of their own wisdom. I feel like this is something I have to teach to my adult kids. Like even if everybody's saying X, but if there's a loud voice in your head telling you something, you know, this, this is not right. This something's weird here. Something's off, right. Or the opposite. There's a good thing here. This is, this, I like, this makes me feel right. Then, you know, even if all the perceived experts are telling you something, you have to, you have to also not not always ignore those voices, but also pay attention to the wisdom that is within your own head, right? And by the same token, you can't only listen to the voice in your own head. You should also respect that there is wisdom and expertise outside of you and be open to accessing that wisdom and expertise. So it's both, both of these types of wisdom that are so important and valuable. All right, thoughts or comments on verse 16. I was thinking that commercials are made to get you to go against your internal wisdom. Interesting. Like, Can you elaborate? Well, I was thinking a lot of my clients, um, several, I don't know if it constitutes a lot, but several, their goal um, for therapy, one of their goals is to get off of TikTok and because they feel like it's really not serving them in a good way. And then I just saw a commercial for TikTok and they made it a moral, uh, uh, they, they were speaking to people's like morals, I guess I would say. Like they have a veteran who has a TikTok channel and he tries to connect with other veterans. And, huh. and then it shows all the comments he's received from other veterans thank you so much. Like you get me, you, you see me, you, and I was like, oh my gosh. I, like, I had no idea where this was going. And then it was like, TikTok, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I was like, oh, that was good. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. There's a Dove commercial going around right now um, with this young woman who um, it's, it's very difficult to watch. You've seen it, Heather. It's a young woman who um, you see her starting off as a little girl and she loves to dress up and dance and da da da. 
And when she's in like, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade, she gets a phone for a birthday present and she's going through social media, you know, and all these influencers are telling her what's trending and you should get out your tape measure and thigh gaps are in this spring and tiny waists and da, da, da. Anyway, long story short, the girl develops an eating disorder and, you know, her mother is telling her you're, I love you, you know, you're everything, you're enough, blah, 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 you know, and all of this, but, and then it sort of said on the bottom, something like social media is harmful to two out of three young women or young girls. Um, and I think that all of that totally constitutes an over-reliance on perceived external wisdom, you know, especially the more famous or beautiful, um, or the more followers a person has, they're considered to be wiser. And if they tell me something, it must be true and it must be real, you know, and I must believe it. Um, and it's not just true for young girls. Think about, you know, Kanye West using his platform to spew anti-Semitism and how that gives anti-Semites permission. Oh, well, if, if he said it, you know, well, then, then, you know, that has credibility and that has weight because he knows, you know, so it's a, it's a very strange world we live in where people can have so much clout and so much perceived wisdom, you know, because of social media, it's a very strange world. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on this verse? All right, moving on to verse 17. Misilak Yesharim. So some of you may recognize that phrase. It's the name of another Musr book that we actually studied in this group. Misilak Yesharim means the path of the just. Sur Meira, the high, so he translates it here. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. Nafsho Notzer Darko. He who guards his way preserves his soul. So we're back to another commonly used metaphor in this book, which is that of traveling on a road, right? You know, the whole life is a journey thing. So here it is. Here's, here's a source for it, right? That a person is traveling along the road and the highway, the path of the just, it departs from evil. Like it, it you know, it's like if you're driving and you pass some roadkill and you veer around it, right? That's what a just person does. He veers around the bad stuff, right? And when you see it, you're like, ew, there's this visceral reaction to like, stay away from that, ew, right? Uh, I, I don't even like, look, I mean, whatever, I need to get into that. Okay, he who guards his way preserves his soul so that you have to be careful on this journey and you have to watch out and you have to know about the pitfalls, a person who doesn't know about the pitfalls, right, is a person who is in an incredible amount of danger. There is no way to avoid a pitfall that you don't know exists, right? So when we say he who guards his way preserves his soul, a person who understands, right, that a car can be a dangerous machine is a person who, should, who can be trusted with a car. You know, you take a kid, a 15-year-old kid who has their permit, and they're like, woohoo, driving is so much fun. This is awesome. You're like, okay, <laughs> we need to have a chat. If you do not understand that you are driving a dangerous machine, then you have no business driving it. 
You have to at least understand the pitfalls. Yes, cars are dangerous. Yes, driving in the rain is more dangerous. Yes, driving in the dark, you gotta be more careful. If you know that you have to guard your path, then you have a chance at being healthy and at being ready, at being you know prepared for what's ahead. So Malbum says as follows, the upright, so this is the first half of the verse, right? The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. The upright have no struggle with their lower nature. All is like a paved highway for them and they can easily keep evil at bay. So it's not hard for these people, like people who have a well-developed sense of morality to avoid pitfalls. It's not hard for them. When they see ugly or unseemly behavior or dangerous, you know, people or just unsavory activities, they're like, ew, like, of course I'm going to veer around that gross. It's like roadkill. It's not even a choice. You know, I'm, I'm repelled by that. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It's not hard. It's not a struggle. One whose instincts do not work so harmoniously, right? So, and of course, you know, all of these, um, all of these drives exist in the same person, right? We all have certain moral pitfalls that are not a struggle for us. It's just like, I would never get involved in that. I would never say that. I would never do that. I would never go there. That's just, it's not my test, right? So in those areas, we're like the upright. It's, it, we're, we're on a straight path. We know where we're going. It's easy for us to veer around the pitfalls. But then also, right, we all have certain aspects of our lives that when our instincts do not work, as it says here, do not work so harmoniously and who is obliged to walk along an unpaved way. So let's say there are certain things that are a pitfall for me. Let's say I have a, a specific um, setting in which I really struggle, right? Let's say, let's say that my home life is, is harmonious and, 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 and healthy and clear, but my situation at work is really fraught and there are unhealthy people there, or there are a lot of moral, um, temptations there that I really don't want to, you know, let's say there's a lot of like flirting or there's a lot of cursing, or there's a lot of shortcut taking. And I feel like, oh gosh, like, it's not so clear for me. Like, this is hard. I feel like I really have to walk gingerly in this setting. And I you know, have to walk along the pitfalls, you know, or sometimes it's a specific relationship. Let's say many of my relationships are clear. It's like a straight path. I know where I'm going. And then I have this like one relationship or maybe a few. I'm like, oh my gosh, why is it that when I always talk to this person, I feel like I'm falling flat on my face, you know? And I feel like, oh, why is this so hard? I, when it comes to this situation, I get so stuck and I don't know what to say. Okay. So that we have to walk along an unpaved way is in a position of constant danger and has to maintain alertness in his effort to guard his soul. In a situation like that, you have to be much more on, much more on, much more on guard, much more like you know, with your eyes open and like, okay, okay, okay. I, I can't just rely on my instincts here. I have to be super conscious, super aware. I have to be super prepared. And I have to make sure like, you know, every decision is I'm like hyper-conscious of it. Um, and, and this is just normal, you know, as we go about our lives, we'll find that, you know, some settings, some people easy, we're on the high road. We know where we're going. We know what we're doing. And some situations are really fraught and that's okay. The difference is that in some cases you can let yourself just sort of coast on autopilot. And in some situations you absolutely cannot, 
You have to be in full awareness, have all your, um, all your wits about you. You know, I feel like this is a, a good analogy for parenting teenagers, for those of you who are in that life stage, um, you know, where I feel like when it comes to parenting teenagers, particularly, particularly certain teenagers, um, particularly at certain times where you're like, you know, you think three times before you say anything because you're like, oh gosh, like, how is this going to land? Is this a good idea? Is this going to work out well? Is this going to be taken? You know, am I just over, over talking or overstepping or, you know, and you have to, whew, it's like exhausting when you're done, you, you know, but it is, it's like a, it's like a fraught path. It's like a obstacle course and you have to tread carefully. So that's okay. You know, life is going to present you with all kinds of different circumstances. Um, and you just need to know when do you need to have all your wits about you? You know, it's like when I'm driving in the dark, in the rain, I mean, I've got like, I'm sitting right up there, like near the steering wheel. I've got my hands on 10 and two, like I'm not talking on the phone. I need to be completely focused on the road. But if I'm driving in the middle of the day and the weather's fine and there's hardly anybody on the road, big deal. I can steer with one hand. I can drink a coffee. I can have a conversation on my Bluetooth, right? I don't need that much. I don't need that much focus for that kind of a journey. So we just need to be prepared. What kind of a ride is this? Is it one in which I need all my attention and focus or is it one where I can just sort of coast? And the more prepared we are, the more likely it will be that we will succeed in that journey. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on 17? We have a small group today small and quiet. <laughs> Anyone? Okay. Everything you're saying, it totally resonates. Um, keep going. Love it. <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement, Dana. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, so we're going to do verses 18 and 19 together as the commentary brings them together and sort of like one theme. So 18 is one of the more well-known quotes from the book of Proverbs. I will say Proverbs is one of the most oft-quoted books in the Torah because it has like all these little gems of wisdom. So this is one of them. Lifnei shever gaon, pride goes before a calamity. Meaning, you know, I think it's, I think in like the Christian English, it's tra translated as pride goes before the fall, right? That arrogance is what precipitates a fall. Like, you know, and again, we have that exact scenario in the Purim story. The Purim story is actually such a great metaphor for so many concepts. So you have, you know, the evil Haman, who's the villain of the story, obviously. And in the beginning of the story, he gets promoted. And he's the one who gives Ahasuerus the idea to kill his wife. And, you know, he's the, he's the it guy. He's second to the king. And there's this decree and everyone has to bow down to him. And then he gets permission to commit genocide and kill out all the Jews. And he's literally at the top of his game. I mean, the only thing that bugs him is that Mordecai won't bow down to him. Other than that, he is absolutely like at the top of the totem pole. And then, of course, what happens eventually, he's invited to the party with the queen and the king and the queen exposes him as this evil villain who wants to kill her people the next thing you know he's hanging on the gallows that he prepared for mordechai so pride or a better translation of this is arrogance 
arrogance goes before the fall. The higher you are, the harder you'll fall. And the second part of the verse, and haughtiness of spirit before a fall. Okay, so the more puffed up and arrogant a person is, the harder they're going to fall when they finally do. In fact, the Talmud says that very often God will actually raise a person up so that his fall will be harder. Okay, so let's go to the comment. Oh, sorry, we'll go to 19, verse 19. Tov shval ruach et anavim, better to be of lowly spirit with the humble, et than to divide the spoils with the arrogant. It, it says here in the in the English proud, but the word proud has you know mostly positive associations in English, so I prefer the word arrogance because this is not a positive word in Hebrew; it's a negative word. Okay, so I'll just I'll just read you the whole English part again. Arrogance goes before a calamity and haughtiness of spirit before a fall. Better to be of lowly spirit with the humble than to divide the spoil with the arrogant. So arrogance, I just have to say, I mean, anybody who has studied Musser at length or for any amount of time knows that arrogance is one of the most despicable character traits that a person who's full of themselves, they don't have room for others. They don't have room for God. They don't have room for repentance because they're so convinced that they are the smartest person in the room, that the decisions that they've made are so wise that it's just really, really hard for them to to humble themselves, to learn new things, to consider that they might be making a mistake, to take advice from others, right? It's just, it's, it's a really, really debilitating character flaw that is um, a roadblock for so many other character traits, okay? So that, that having been said, let's go to the commentary. Haughtiness of spirit is a stage before, he says, he, said, he calls it pride. Haughtiness of spirit is a stage before pride. So this is the beginning part of the verse. It's like, he's saying it's sort of like a graduated process, a tendency to superiority that has not yet stamped itself on the character. So what that means is that, look, every person is born with certain natural characteristics. Now, there are some people who are naturally very confident, right? You can see this in children, that some kids are naturally super confident, they're natural leaders, they're the first to respond, they like to be in charge. There's nothing wrong with that. That is a natural neutral character trait. However, that character trait could tip into arrogance if you're not careful and if it goes unchecked. You know, if enough people tell this kid, oh my gosh, look at you, you're so smart. You're so, or enough people get intimidated by that person that they get used to bossing other people around, right? Or nobody's there to teach them values and morals and character, right? To tell them, listen, honey, I, I know you think you're right, But, you know, sometimes other people know more than you, you know, or sometimes you have to admit that you might not know everything, right? And this is the job of parents to be moral teachers and guides to teach values and character. So if nobody, you know, checks this kid or if they themselves don't accept it, this is a tendency that could swing into arrogance. Okay, this is like a preliminary stage. At this stage, it is easy to fall into real arrogance which heaven detests and punishes severely. So if you find yourself 
thinking thoughts of superiority in any given situation, in a family situation, in a community situation, in a professional situation, right? Let's say you're sitting at a meeting and people are saying stuff, you know, and you're like, that's stupid, right? Or let's say you're in a store and you think that the store is being really not managed well, um, or I'll just give you an example from my life. <laughs> this is something I'm dealing with. You're in a bank. I'm in the process of switching to a new bank. You're in a bank and the bank is so badly managed that you're literally, I don't even understand. Like you, you find yourself thinking these superior thoughts, like this is the dumbest bank I've ever been in. They're so, I cannot believe this is what, this is their system. This is what's so stupid, right? You find yourself thinking superior thoughts. It's okay. It's okay. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're arrogant and God detests you, but it does mean that you are at risk for arrogance, right? That's what's called haughtiness of spirit. Those are arrogant thoughts. That's okay. Check it. Just check it and say, just so you know, you're thinking arrogant thoughts. Just make sure it doesn't go any further. This is might be a good time to give the benefit of the doubt. This might be a good time to consider that you don't know the whole story. This might be a good time to consider that you've never run a bank in your life. Right? Okay. Stop it at the early stages. It's like with anger, you find yourself getting angry. Try to put a lid on it before it escalates. You find yourself... Uh, wanting to insult somebody else. Okay. Check it. Stop it before it comes out of your mouth. The drives are natural and human. It's the behavior that we have to try to control and check. And eventually that will also help mold our character, right? And it will make those, you know, flare-ups within our mind less likely and fewer and farther between. Um, okay. The commentary continues. The humble person, on the other hand, recognizes human limitations and sees no reason for arrogance, right? A humble person is like, well, okay, I guess, you know, people make mistakes or that's okay, or this is what happens, right? They're not having all those arrogant thoughts. There are two forms of humility, however, okay? And this is all based on the, the actual words in Hebrew that are chosen for these verses. The lowly spirit, right? Which is called in Hebrew, shal ruach, that's in the beginning of verse 19. There is no self-esteem at all and the person is so undemanding that he does not even feel insult or mockery. So I want to point out what this isn't. This isn't where like a person feels insulted and they feel hurt, but they don't feel like they have any right to speak up. They don't even feel insulted. They're like, okay, well, I don't know what that was, but that obviously has nothing to do with me. The other humility, right? So that's at the end of verse 19 in English, in, uh, Hebrew, it's called anavim, is a rational realization of human limitation imposed on a basic sense of personal worth. Even though humility is the one trait in which we are advised to go to extremes, right? Again, usually Judaism doesn't want us to go to extremes. But when it comes to being humble, the Torah actually does tell us to be extremely humble. Right? What does extremely humble mean? It means, like it says before, it means that I understand that as a human, I am limited and I, and I still have a basic sense of personal worth. It doesn't mean I'm worthless. It just means that as a human being, I am by definition limited. I make mistakes. I don't know the whole story. I can easily jump to conclusions. So I recognize my limitations. So, um, okay. So even though humility is one trait in which we are advised to go to extremes, and not to keep to the golden mean generally prescribed, 
prescribed. The extreme of the lowly spirit should be tempered by humility, by a rational and healthy concept of oneself. Meaning that a person should not be have such a, how does he put it in the English? Have such a low spirit, right? This is the person who doesn't even register insults. Such a low spirit, you have to remember that you still have um, a rational and healthy concept of self. It doesn't mean that you're a nobody. It means that you are a limited somebody. Ultimately, he says here, humility does bring honor. Why? Because when we act humble, that is honorable behavior. When you think of somebody who's humble, right? Let's say you think of, especially somebody I feel like who could easily be arrogant, like somebody who's famous or has a lot of status or who, um, you know, has a lot of power, influence, wealth, and that person is humble anyway, right? If you think about it, their esteem is associated with their humility. It's like people will say, oh my gosh, they're so humble. And you, it's honorable to be humble. So a person shouldn't think, oh, well, if I'm humble, then I'm going to be dishonored. Everybody's going to step all over me. Everybody's going to overlook me or ignore me. No, that's not what it means. True humility is a, a true perception of my worth in a way that's not dependent on everybody fawning over me all the time in order for me to have a sense of self-worth. It means that I have a natural sense of self-worth, understanding that I am limited, but nevertheless, an essentially worthy human being. Okay, Debbie, is that is that your hand up because you wanted to ask a question? Debbie? No, my hand wasn't up. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. No big deal. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on 18 and 19? So I'm, I'm just trying to understand the difference between the two types. Um, so the first one in the commentary says there's no self-esteem at all. And the person is so undemanding that he doesn't feel insults or mockery. But it almost sounds like a, a person who's like lets things roll off their back, maybe. Like, does it have to be associated with low self-esteem or could it be somebody who's so understand like i'm i'm not gonna <laughs> go into too much detail but i think of a person who acts a certain way that is insulting but they do so with everyone and someone says i'm not gonna take it personally i just let it roll off my back i mean it's not personal they do this with everyone that's a wise person right yeah so, um does it have to do with like being mistreated or like like you're you're insulted and you're being treated like a doormat and you don't realize you have better? Is that the first version? You deserve better. It, no, it, see that's why he says at the end um, that the extreme of lowly spirit should be tempered by humility. That this shval ruach, this lowliness of spirit, which is what you're describing, it could go too much in an unhealthy extreme. That's a risk, right? So like, let's say that somebody insults me and I say to myself, well, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, that's fine. I don't know. Maybe they're right. It's okay. I'm not making a big deal about that. 
if that gets too dangerously close to I'm a nobody and I deserve this, that's the unhealthy extreme. So then they have to remember that humility doesn't mean thinking that you're a nobody. You know, I once heard a great quote. I don't know where this comes from. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. So I, again, I don't know who said that, or I don't even, I, I don't even know if it's a Torah source or from another source, but true humility doesn't mean I'm a nobody. It means that we don't know, we don't have to talk about me all the time. I don't have to think about me all the time. If somebody insults me and I can say to myself, that says more about them than it does about me, right? Or, or let's say I say, you know, I once saw somebody on social media say something like, I'm not for everyone. And I was like, that is such a great attitude. I'm not for everyone. Okay. So let's say that I post something, you know, on Instagram or Facebook and somebody, you know, doesn't like it, or it gets somebody upset or something I like blogged about or taught about or wrote about. That's okay. Everybody doesn't have to like me all the time right? That's not being, that's not self-abnegation. That's a healthy sense of humility. I don't need everybody to like me in order to feel worthy. That's, that's what humility is. So this lowliness of spirit where a person like literally insults don't affect them because they don't think everybody needs to like them. That's great. However, that attitude is at risk for saying, well, I, I deserve it. I, I'm, I'm not worthy. I, nothing that I say is smart or nothing that, which, which a lot of people veer into that when they do get insulted, like, oh my gosh, maybe they're right. I'm so stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I should revise it. That's too low self-esteem. That's an unhealthy extreme. And, and it also just on a practical level, that mindset impedes your ability to get anything done in the world. Because if you're going to get broken by criticism, you're not going to be able to do anything, not as a parent, not as a teacher, not as a professional, anything that you do, there's going to be somebody who doesn't like what you do. So you have to have a healthy sense of self independent of everybody telling you how amazing you are. Okay. I love quotes, but I'm terrible at remembering them like verbatim. And I, I don't like to mess them up, but what, it reminds me of that one. That's something like, if you have no enemies, you've never stood for something or something. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a few versions of that. I think um, it's not coming to mind at the moment, but I know the I know that what you're talking about. Anybody who accomplished anything in the world has had detractors and critics, you know, especially in the online world that we live in. So it's sort of like the no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. If you're going to put yourself out there, there's going to be haters. Yeah. Do you, um, so, Ruchi, when you were talking about like the bank, and I know you've had a lot of bank experience. <laughs> But um, it does sort of remind me, like, a, a disclaimer, I, I have low tolerance for incompetence. Oh, my gosh. Me, too. Oh, I mean, I, like, literally, that's that's my most or minefield. I have more than just this. But, but <laughs> I mean, like, if I hire a carpenter, as the case once was, and they tell me the scene cannot go to the corner of the mantle and I, I, I'm like, 
Okay, this is upsetting to me because your area of expertise is supposed to be carpentry and how to make the geometry work. And I can't even visualize, you know, so I'm very judgmental about incompetence in the area in which there's they purport to have competency. Um, I don't like to know more than my doctor. I don't like to know more than my tile guy, whatever it is. Um, I think, well, I know nothing and you know less than that and I'm paying you. Anyway, so, um, so this is an area for me to work on, but it also, it seems to me like maybe, it, you know, um, the man in the arena quote and got, I'm not going to try and say it's verbatim, but um, Theodore Roosevelt's, you know, um, oh, the man, it's my favorite quote, but it's really long, but um, about the man who's in the arena, his face marred by dust, sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. So I think maybe there's an element to that that's like if you're the critic who's in the bleachers judging the man who's down in the arena face down in the dust and and uh stands up again and again like that that seems to me like to be the really terrible version where you're you're so judgmental of when you're up in the you're sitting there in the bleachers and they're the ones that are getting getting the job done right but I think that's different because it's that's like, you know, people who criticize, you know, their school or their synagogue or whatever, and they're not willing to roll up their sleeves and help get the job done. That's one thing. But when I'm in a, a customer service based industry, like a store or a bank, and I'm getting bad customer service, it's not my job to provide. It's not my job to roll up my sleeves and get in the arena. Right. So it's a little different. Yeah. And, and that's why I think it's a little more or so I want to believe, acceptable <laughs> to be judgmental when when like it's someone else's job, especially if you're paying them for, for them to do their job. So it's really not my job to have to figure out how my seams are going to go to the corners, even though I end up having to do it. <laughs> but, right. And, but- you know, in, in real life, I'm very similar to you. I'm so judgmental. I, I was just saying this to my daughter. I have like such a low tolerance for bad service. But from a Musser perspective, I'll tell you where I've landed with this. Really, from a Musser perspective, it's my job to be humble in that situation. I walk in there with expectations and entitlements, and I am judging the people. I'm judging the person. Now, that doesn't mean I can't take my business elsewhere. It does mean I should try not to judge that human being harshly. Maybe they are doing their best. I don't know. Maybe their best is not good enough for me. Fine. I have the right to shop around, right? But that, that I'll call it arrogant. I mean, just speaking to my, for myself, I'm not speaking for you. That arrogant mindset of like, this is insane. Who do they think they are, right? That's not a Musseri mindset. And I know that I don't feel good when I'm in that headspace. So by all means, take your business elsewhere. That's your prerogative as a consumer. Be a discerning consumer. That doesn't mean that you have, by you, I mean me, that doesn't mean that I have to also be arrogant and judgmental through that process. Well, you kind of do have to be judge. You have to 
exercise some evaluative capacity to recognize that the service is subpar and that you should take your business elsewhere. Yes, you, can be, a, you can be a critical thinker without judging that person. So, like, so evaluate, but don't disparage. Is that the takeaway? Um, I, I would say judge situations, not people. Mm-hmm. Like personally, I think that the banker who was helping me was not equipped to do his job. So really, whose fault is that? The person who hired him. Who is the person who hired him? I don't know. So I'm trying to think what, how I would apply this. Because I, I like, so if my carpenter says the seam can't go to the corners and I'm, I know it can, I don't necessarily know how, but I know we put a man on the moon. Those seams are good to go to the corners. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, if I have to, I will fig- find a way to, to, or enlist somebody to help me, which is what I usually do, that is to enlist somebody else and be like, this is how the thing goes in corners. But how do, how do you apply that sort of not judge the person? When Look, it's a person? This, this person obviously doesn't have the skill set that I need for this job. So I can either accept the skill set that he has or find someone else. But to sit in judgment of his skills doesn't serve anyone. To sit in, I shouldn't say to sit in judgment of his skills. That you should do. To sit in judgment of him as a person. You're, you're a bad person versus yeah. carpentry <laughs> angles. Yeah. Could yeah. Use work. <laughs> yeah, this person is limited in their skill set. Okay, now what do I want to do about it? It doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make them subpar, you know? Yes. Yeah, I don't know that I go so far as to like, because I usually have a a camaraderie with the person. So I'm not sure if I like judge them wholly, but as a carpenter, I'm like, you know. Yeah. Okay, we are going to close here. Thanks, ladies, for participating. It was great to see all of you.